Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're back to the O'Haley Show, and my guests today are Scott Evans and Shamira Howard, couple to thruple on Peacock, premiering February 8th. How are you guys, and how did this project start? Because, you know, I was reading about it, and Scott, how did this happen? I'm going to tell you, Neil, it happened because so many conversations around non-monogamy were happening, right? Where everybody is looking at their dynamic. So many people, I shouldn't say everyone, but so many people are looking at their dynamic and saying and asking themselves, is this the best we can do? <laughs> you know what I mean? And and they're they're drawing to themselves, you know, um, uh, more resources. They're drawing to themselves more support. You know, people are going to therapy more than ever. You know, they're, the younger generations, millennials and Gen Z are looking at generations before them and saying, okay, y'all don't have all the answers. <laughs> so we can't keep doing it the exact same way y'all been doing it. And maybe there's something out here that that is that that would work better for me. And so, you know, this show I think was born out of out of that curiosity, was born out of that reality. And so the, the, what better scenario, what better place, what better what better um uh, uh environment to try this thing out and see if this could be the life for you than with the incredible support the incredible guidance and 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 wealth of knowledge that is Dr. Shamira in this process so Dr. Shamira tell us define this whole story i mean what is what does it mean thruple define thruple for me Absolutely. I'm so glad you asked. So let's throuples are an under the umbrella of polyamory, which is also under the umbrella of non-monogamy. So when we're talking about non-monogamy, we're just talking about being in a relationship structure that's not just with one person. And so under that, there are so many different structures. There's polyamory. And so polyamory means being in multiple relationships at the same time. Now that can get tricky because there are several different dynamics under polyamory, but couple to thruple focuses on thruples, which means we are three people in a relationship. Now, thruples have historically gotten a bad rap because it's seen as monogamy plus one person, which polyamory and polyamorists, they often think of polyamory as me and my partner are not dating the same person. That is so hard. It's one of the hardest structures there is to do. And so that is why we were so specific on this show, Couple to Thruple, to bring the couples and the singles through these challenges so that they could be sure that they were sure that this is what they wanted to do. So, Scott, how does this look? You know, you know, now the big movement on TikTok and all those other platforms with the Andrew Tates or the other guys that are the followers of Andrew Tate that because they're high powered, they can have multiple relationships with women. This is not what it is. It's like they know each other that all three are involved in this relationship right scott yeah no this is not um um this is not an event of of casting your harem no not at all and and i think that the 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 idea here is um there more and more of us are finding that the typical or traditional relationship structure isn't something that is is successful for us and um, moreover, more specifically, what happens when we can be honest, when we can be open, when we can be 100% authentic uh, in our relationship? What happens when our our partner is prepared to receive that alongside us? You know what I mean? And so just because we're we're talking about it doesn't mean doesn't mean that we have to do it. But I think that the 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 reality is that that non-monogamy, um, in particular. Um, uh, the the thruple dynamic is something that is real and and true and and people are thriving in. I think that you know there are a, a ton of people that are very curious about it. I think that they suffer the same pitfalls, very similar pitfalls that any relationship does. And I think that you know the, it was it was also just about time that we saw a, a show on um, on television, a dating show that was also had some element of being inherently queer. You know what I mean? To me, it was about also seeing the 
the the the partners experience more of the life that they that they dreamed of more of the life that they were interested in more of the life they were coming to re, uh, revelations or or um uh, realizations that included more than their partner and um uh, or the partner that they came to to Panama with and so it was really exciting to see people show up really you know I mean authentically to show up interested and curious and 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 you know with that new relationship energy you know I, I think that the idea was that at, at the very least they would be made better for the experience and I think that we it, 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 in that intention I think it was a mission accomplished so dr Shamira what what should we expect if we watch the show well what you can expect to see is four curious highly curious couples as we call them trying to figure out if bringing in another partner, not just for relations, but for relationship is going to work for their monogamous, with their monogamous values. Because you got to understand these couples, many of them have no experience in non-monogamy. So they are bringing their monogamous values, which often you're going to see on couple to throuple clash with what being in a more um, non-monogamous setting is going to do for them. So what you'll see is you're going to see issues with desire. You're going to see issues with jealousy on the show and how they overcome that communication, boundaries, chemistry. You're going to see couples exploring chemistry, all different types of chemistry with another person. And wow. as you can only imagine, that's going to get pretty tricky for them really quickly. <laughs> totally, Scott. And this is like Temptation Island on steroids, isn't it? Well, no, Temptation Island, I think, was 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 a show created to test the trust of uh, a partner, you know, while orchestrating it through, you know, rather, I think, dangerous um, uh, territory and manipulations. It was fascinating television, that is for sure. Uh, but it didn't it didn't feel it didn't feel all that great um, uh, to me to, to to see individuals going through those scenarios structured in that kind of way. Now, this show is definitely centered in heart. It is centered in um, the success of our couples and the success of potential throuples. I think that, you know, the, 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 the goal here really and truly is to bring a dynamic that is, uh, has been around longer than um, uh, monogamy for sure. Um, to to bring that dynamic back to the forefront in a way that was um, fun, in a way that was interesting, in a way that was also sexy, but then in a way that was true to the experience of so many people who are moving from one experience into another. And I think that you're going to find yourself, you know, kind of when you're watching, you're going to be like, I think I see myself in this. Or I, you know what? I, that is exactly how I would have handled it. And you are definitely going to think about a, a few instances where you were like, now that is not how I would have done that. <laughs> so, <laughs> sure. so Dr. Shamira, there's going to be some, some pain because they might say, let's do this. And it just doesn't feel right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, so what we're going to see is, you know, viewers, if you're watching Couple to Thruple, you're going to see if these couples were even able to find another willing single partner to add to a thruple with them, or if they're going to leave the resort, how they came as a couple, or, Neil, if they're even going to leave together, they might decide they don't want to be in relationship with anyone and oh go home God. by themselves. So, yeah, there is going to be, you know, it's going to be some interesting uh, concepts and some interesting deliveries that are happening in Couple to Thruple. Well, Dr. Shamira, I'm concerned about monogamy in general in the next 20 years. <laughs> Is it becoming you like Europe? Huh? Go ahead. I mean, ahead, me. and then the family dynamics, that's what I'm thinking. I don't know. That's my take. Well, well, what is the family dynamic now? You know, so just imagine if we're in a relationship, right? There's always been multiple people in relationships, even before monogamy was a thing and the family structure thrived then. So if we're in a loving relationship, a compatible relationship where there's more than one person that can't do nothing, you know, that can only benefit the family structure. Right. So it's not necessarily something that is going to do away with the family structure as we know it. We're always in relationship with people and we're always talking about, we need a village. Where is the village? So if we're in non-monogamous or polyamorous relationships, 
we know that there is a village there. And what we also know about these relationship structures is that they work and they are working if the people in them do the work. Now they are. Well, that's why everyone, no doubt. That's why everyone needs to tune into Peacock on February 8th. Love Peacock. Always work with NBC on a regular basis as well. And I love having conversations now, Scott. I mean, do you think this is what Europe was 10 years ago? I don't know, you know, looking at the world structure of this, how it's becoming more known in the United States, throupling than before. Yeah, I, I, what, I, what I'll tell you is that whether whether it's Europe, whether it's the past, whether it's the future, I, it, what I can tell you is that it is happening now. You know what I mean? And and the the reality is if if monogamy is working for you, if you feel seen and heard and understood and valued in your relationship, then continue moving, baby, as you are moving because it is working for you. Yeah. But if it is not, you are allowed to um, uh, um, uh, mind that experience. If it is not, you are allowed to uh, look at that experience and critique it. You are allowed to change it. You are allowed to put that experience through all of these various filters to ensure that you can live the best life you want. And if it matter, if it means getting into getting into a throuple, then by all means, find you some oh support, do some resources, and do what you got to do. And if it doesn't, then baby, have it your way. That's all right. So tune in to Peacock February. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, man. You. All right, you're listening, watching the Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and Author's Corner. I'm first excited to welcome my co-host, Paul Hollis, author of the Hollow Man series. Paul, how are you? I know you're excited about our guest. It's really his podcast, Author's Corner, but he has so many books, we can't even keep track of them, can we? That's that's true. He is, he is a multi-genre, and he's all over the place, and they're all great books so welcome <laughs> welcome frank thank you paul hey frank okay so let's talk about daijin how did you come up with this idea you know you're a western author talk cyber kill you write about historical fiction in certain ways how did you come up with that the idea of daijin and it's spelled i-g-i-n isn't that correct but you say yeah. it differently yeah. pronounced daijin in, in japanese so i'm told um how did they get? I I frequently return to uh, the concept of alienation because I went through a lot of that uh, in my youth, and I like to I like to explore that. And uh, Daijin was a, was a good vehicle for that because for two reasons: one, uh, it, it it works with with the, this, this young American boy totally pulled out of his environment of, of the of of, a, of America in the nineteen thirties and forties and dropped into Japan. Uh, during the Pacific War, and he has to uh, come of age, and this concept of coming age is keep. I keep returning to in my books. Um, he has to come 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 of age against the backdrop of a totally different culture. And the second uh, second piece is that I always wanted to write a book about uh, World War Two. I'm a historical. I love history, and I'm a political World War Two wonk. I just love World War Two. I studied everything all about it. And it all kind of came together, especially uh, especially in Daijin. Now, Daijin is basically the um, seeing the war from the Japanese side. And the characters, I create fictional characters during the period of 1936 to 1945 Japan. And then I put, I put them against the real, real uh, historical characters. And in fact, if you're familiar with the Herman Walk, who wrote The Winds of War and War and Remembrance, it's similar. It's a, it it uh, tracks a Japanese family and Connor Connor Williams, who was the young boy, teenage boy, and it, it tracks their uh, experiences both personally as a family and then uh, and in the uh, uh, the experience of the Japanese uh, going through that war at the time. You know, and and you know, if you know, Frank, when you talk about specifically enough, you know, uh, the book and the history. So, you, are you a huge war buff? Am I what? In the wars, the history and war and all that. Oh, yeah, I love that, too. Yeah, again, I, I follow World War II in particular, but I like any any historical uh, period that deals with the conflict. Yeah, so, you know, and that's the, that is an interesting. And how did you kind of put historical versus this fictional and how you put the, this this 
hope are you hoping that that you shed new light to the Japanese people in this in this book? Well, there are a lot of myths that are that are uh, proved wrong in the book, okay, and especially with the people today that they like to uh, redo history and change it and uh, and and making coming up with reasons why we shouldn't do this or do that. And I hope the book shows that the, that that they're wrong and you can't just reconstruct history the way you want it to be. Um, writing a f- historical fiction is a lot different than writing fiction. When an author writes a fiction, pure, pure fiction, he's in, in control of that universe. He can do anything he wants. But if you're, if you're writing historical fiction, then you're, you, you, you are uh, blocked into what history has done, and you have to work within that universe. And so historical fiction is very challenging compared to just writing uh, a normal uh, everyday fiction book. And, and that's that's the interesting thing. How do you come up with your ideas of developing characters, Frank? It's got to be a lot of time you put into these books. You know, here's I read all kinds. Of, I mean, I when I started writing, you got these uh, uh, templates to come down and then to develop a character before you. I don't do that stuff. Okay, basically, what I do is when I write a book, I come up with a, what I call is a uh, is a, uh, a, a, a a plot. Uh, that is a, like a wireframe. Uh, here's basically just, just points, like doing a uh, a uh, uh, PowerPoint slide. This the points from the beginning to end, and, that, and I call that my my wireframe. And on that wireframe, I hang uh, a plot points with that say, "Here's how the story will develop." And then what I need to do is that since plot is driven by characters, and characters are driven by behavior. That's that's my plan for, for a book. So I, I got the I got the plots out. I mean the, the wireframe out. I got the plot out more or less. Not you know not uh, obviously to the end. I mean into real detail. But then I say okay now I, I in order to drive these plot points I got to come up with characters. I develop the characters and label them. And then I say well in order for them to drive the plot now they got what, what's their behavior. And so by by looking at their behavior. I just begin defining the the characteristics of the of the character. That's that's crazy. It's it's very interesting, intriguing for sure, Frank. And uh, and you just always are coming up with a new story, right? Right, right. Now, Daijin is very fascinating because I always like to have a hook, right? And in 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 my books, and Daijin is is about uh, Connor Williams, a teenage boy who ends up climbing into the seat of Mitsubishi, Mitsubishi Zero uh, to, to uh, join his fellow kamikaze pilots off the coast of Japan to attack the American fleet. Now, that seems well, that's ridiculous. Now, now, what would an American boy, teenage boy, be doing flying, a kam- becoming a kamikaze? Well, that's not too far-fetched. Because there is a book uh, about a, a Japanese and American born in Japan. I'm um, born in America, goes back to Japan, and the name of the book is Shig, and he becomes a kamikaze pilot. He's an American, and he be, uh, Japanese American, but he's an American, and he becomes a kamikaze pilot. And yeah, I know. I said, well, and he write this book in his autobiography. Of course, you say, well, wait a minute. You know, how does <laughs> the kamikaze pilot so to write a book? Well, the kamikaze is, is, is very misunderstood. Now, there were lots of reasons why uh, the, the Japanese pilots became kamikaze. And it's not all for the emperor and all this. They weren't fanatics. Uh, at that time, Japan was literally being bombed into the ground with B-29 uh, attacks or what have you. And the uh, no matter what position you want to take as a pacifist or warmonger in Japan, you you felt that your family was being was being attacked and and and, and that they all believed that the Americans would wipe out the Japanese race, and so that a lot of kamikaze pilots did that to defend their families, okay, and not necessarily their country, and so there's a so the, I, I try I tried to show that in the book about what motivated the kamikaze and 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 why some of them survived and why and why some of them didn't. And that's so, so, so intriguing. And uh, kamikaze pilots. Did you ever want to be a pilot, Frank? A pilot, yeah, you know, I actually have five. I got five hours booked in a, in a, in a Cessna. <laughs> I never followed through on it. But... You got to do it. Why don't you like fly one of those, like learn, get your pilot's license? Something yeah. else for you to do, Frank. Yeah, I probably should. You know, no, I'll do that. I'll be an 80-year-old pilot. <laughs> 
You never. So how old are you, Frank? I'm 77. Okay. You'll be, so it'll take you three years. Okay. 80 year old yeah. pilot. <laughs> and that's the thing that we better all watch out for is the older generation is not giving up their, uh, their power, their, uh, le legacy. They're going to continue. And no. Frank Fiore, he's definitely living that legacy, writing books, loving life. And how many hours? So Daijin is the, just the first of the series. There's going to be more of the series. Oh, there's three volumes. It covers the whole Pacific war uh, from the, uh, and the history of Japan at that time from, from 1936 to 1945. So the original book was about 780 pages, 800 pages. And my publisher said, you know, you just don't make a book that big because they can't get the covers around it. So we decided to break it into three volumes. So this is volume one, and then we'll have volume two and volume three. All right. And then what's awesome is we're really going to learn the Japanese people that we might not have known about, right? Why right. Japan became what they did. Why did they come up with a specific alliance? We're seeing the same history right now. We don't know who's taking sides in the world, do we? No, we don't. No, because alliances are formed in a world war, aren't they? In a world war, yes, yeah, and and you know, a war is coming. There's no two ways about it. Okay, the question well, is, war is already here, but a world war is almost here. Yeah, yeah, it is, and civil war. I'm surprised at what's going on in Texas with the governor uh, Abbott refusing to obey what the feds tell him. I mean, stop and think about this. You know, he's declaring uh, states' rights. As the Confederacy declared back in the Civil War, and uh, he's and then Biden, I don't know if he's either stupid or just nasty, doesn't realize that that what 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 is making us walk into if he doesn't back off, and because he's not going to win with Abbott, he's not going to win with Texas, and now they're telling him saying they they should send federal troops into Texas. Oh, that boy, that ever happened? Oh, bring bring Davy Crockett needs to come back. <laughs> Whoever's Davy Crockett's grandson, grandson, great grandson. Yeah, no, but this, <laughs> see, this is the thing history repeats itself. Best yeah. place, Frank, to get Daijin is available on Amazon, but you also soon your new website being developed, frankfiori.com. Right now, you can check it out, but soon we're going to have another Frank Fiori website very, very soon. So, um, really exciting things. Go check out Daijin, all those other books. Frank, appreciate it. A great author's corner. We could have you on and do author's corner all day long. Appreciate it, yeah. Frank. <laughs> all right. You're listening. Watch the Neil Haley show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley show. And you know what? I love to talk products and especially it's Super Bowl time. So I'm, and I'm really going to be excited to be working with this uh, great advertising firm again, to be able to interview different, amazing people as I add another segment to my show. You're like, how many segments can you add? A thousand I can, but my guest today is Jamie Brown. She's a director of marketing at Kit NA Brewing. Jamie, thanks for stopping by. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Let's talk about uh, your background and how you became the director of marketing for Kit NA Brewing. I thank you for asking. I'm so happy to talk about myself first of all. <laughs> um, no, I've always been in the beverage industry. I have worked for top kombucha brands. I actually started. I love kombucha, by the Ooh. way. Yeah. yeah. Brew Doctor. Shout out to Brew Doctor Kombucha. They just got with nationwide distribution in Starbucks. But I, I've always been in the beverage industry and kit. And me was just, we were just meant to be. They are a non-alcoholic brewery in Maine. And I just moved from Boston to Maine and we found one another. And I'm excited to be here because I, I skipped to categories that are growing tremendously. And the NA beer beverage category right now is the fastest growing category in beverage there ever was, ever. So it's okay. an amazing. So so right. now this is so much of an education for me. And if you didn't know my background before, uh, pro, I was a professional wrestler, then a teacher. So I taught for so many years. So I add the entertainment of wrestling and the fun lengths of like I can just go and the flow. I don't care. And then add teaching with great questions, and that's what makes my show the way it does. So when we talk about educating people about non-alcoholic beverages, I know there's a need because people like the taste. But I just am like, you know what, why non-alcoholic? What is the reasoning and how is it still, as it's thriving business out there still? 
Let me tell you, I thought the same thing when I was first onboarded with Kit. I was I was approached and I was having conversations with them and truly thinking, who is this consumer? Is it people that are just sober? They're just they just need to be sober in their life. That is not the consumer. 97% of the NA beer consumer, they also drink beer. So our consumer is truly you, me. It's people that want to go and socialize. One in seven people walk into a bar. One in seven, I'm hitting you with all these stats right now, walk yeah. into a bar for a non-alcoholic beverage. And that is an incredible number. So it's the people that are golfing all day and they just want to take a break from alcohol, but they still want to socialize and have a drink in their hand. You know, it's the people that are going to barbecues and they're just, maybe they had a Heineken right before, and then they have a kit and a beer right after, and then they go back to Heineken. It's just for the people that are also pausing as well as the ones that are looking to engage in dry months and just have a more beneficial mental clarity kind of a month too. And I hear dry January is we're almost over, right? Today's the last day, but that's okay. To define dry January for me, but I want to go back into this non-alcoholic to know what types of products you have that really intrigues the non-alcoholic uh, group. But what's dry January? Dry January? Today's the last day. So if you oh. want to start dry January, do it. Today, you've got it. I got my coffee right here. You can't see it, but go ahead. No, dry January is... There's also a dry July. There's a sober October. There's all sorts of these challenging sober months. And it really is where people are just engaging in non-alcoholic beverages instead of alcoholic beverages. And it's just taking a month off from drinking alcoholic beverages and engaging, if you would like, in the non-alcoholic spectrum. There's so many, as I said, it's the fastest growing category. So there are so many options Beer is one, but mocktails are ever growing. There's now non-alcoholic seltzers. The category is explosive and there's an option for everybody. Option C, you're used to quick talking points and short radio interviews. So I'll bring you back. And where I'm going to bring you back is I'm really intrigued by, you mentioned all of those different ones. Now, non-alcoholic beer. Yeah. What, there are people that really love the taste of beer. I'm not one of them, but there are there a lot that after they get hooked to it, they need that taste and mm -hmm. that's a seller for you. Yeah, absolutely. People love, love non-alcoholic beer is the, the biggest segment within non-alcoholic beverages it has the most consumers. People love non-alcoholic beer and it's not just, you know, you would assume thinking about the demographic, it would be 45 to 55 dads. That's not it. It is this generational shift that is happening right now. And it's through the 26 and under crowd that is really creating this momentum of being healthier and wanting to drink non-alcoholic beer, non-alcoholic beverages. So it's not just for the people that are loving beer and want to substitute for that. It's for everyone, right? And it's everyone. It's starting younger as well. And it's exciting. It's exciting. It seems really fun. It's like you, you go ahead and, uh, you know, get that, get, get it out there. And are there flavors of non-alcoholic beer? Oh yeah. So I'll selfishly talk about kit because that's the brand I work for. Yes. So we have three flavors right now. We have an American blonde, which is just very light and citrusy and really approachable. We just launched a wheat flavor, which is our most crushable flavor out of all of them. We just launched that this month actually. And Belgian wheat, you know, is a very, very popular type of a beer. So we're excited for people to try this. And then we have a hazy IPA. And IPA is an extremely popular type of a beer. I'm a woman. And when I think of IPA, I think brute and maybe hoppy. And it is so not. It is, it's my favorite one out of all three, out of the IPA, the wheat and the blonde. And it's just completely just so approachable and crushable and has tropical notes in it. It's delicious. Okay. And now I'm more into the fruitsy stuff and all yeah. that as even drinking. I mean, yeah. I'll have beer. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, yeah. I'm more into, you know, you know, even mixing drinks or different things like that. Are there non-alcoholic things that Kit NA Brewing has that, especially for Super Bowl Sunday, that they can enjoy, but might still think they're tasting alcohol in a way? So, I mean, I wish I wish I could sit here and tell you that we are 
you know, concocting and infusing with different types of things. But those are the three flavors that we have. Oh, so you're only doing beer. You said seltzers too. We only do beer. Nope. Oh, oh, only beer. Okay. Yeah, we just do beer. But I will say when you have a kit, when you have a non-alcoholic beer, you don't miss the alcohol. I can't wait until you receive yours. I believe you receive yeah. them. If even if you don't love the taste of beer, please, please sidebar me and be like, I didn't even realize there wasn't any alcohol in it. It's unbelievable. You won't even know. So let's talk about how do you get that product out there, especially out there. How long has Kit uh, NA Brewing been around? Since 2021. It launched in 2021 based in Portland, Maine. So Portland, Maine is really a high craft brew area, but we have really, truly expanded in just the last few months up and down the East coast, but we're also available on Amazon nationwide, as well as on our website nationwide. So it's easy for people to grab it and purchase it. And it ships directly to them in two days, which is amazing which is amazing. And you, and, and by, and, and that's the thing, but there is definitely that need for the Super Bowl for people to yeah. have a non-alcoholic beverage and to pick up kit. Uh, that's awesome. Where's the best place people can go and stuff for that? I would honestly, if you really want fast shipping, I would do Amazon. That is two days straight to your home. But if you live on the East coast and you live close to a Wegmans, that's another really great option as well. But Amazon's your best bet. You can get our variety pack as all three flavors in it directly to your home and arrives in a beautiful little package. Oh, this is great information for sure. And people could check it out Amazon, but there's a website as well to learn more about kit and a brewing, right? Yeah. It's K I T N a dot beer. So that's it, kitna.beer. And there's so many fun, so much fun information on there, tons of blogs, all the awards that we've won, funny people. We like to have fun as a brand and make people understand, oh, I can be the most authentic version of myself and enjoy this good beer at this moment in time and just have fun with it. All right. Thanks for stopping by. Appreciate it, Jamie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. You're welcome. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Strategic Wealth Strategies Podcast with our host, Alan Porter. Alan, how are you, man? What's going on? Doing great, doing great. Got a good friend of mine, a very knowledgeable man today, Don Graves. Uh, we're going to learn a lot of stuff from Don today. Oh, absolutely. I got the opportunity to chat with him as well and such amazing information. Don Graves, thanks for stopping by. And we're going to talk reverse mortgages on Strategic Wealth Strategies Podcast. How are you, Don? Fantastic. Thank you both for having me. All right, so we're going to just jump into something. We, we uh, kind of broke down the origin on another podcast, and people could check it out with Neil Haley and Don Graves. But this one here is, we're really going to focus in on his business, reverse mortgages. What is a reverse mortgage, and how does it work? <laughs> a reverse mortgage is, if you're not careful, it's a good way to get beat up at the barbecue. <laughs> Last time you mentioned reverse mortgages, what happened? Three people went under the table, three people left the table, and your Aunt Janie made a shank out of a plastic knife and fork and came after you. It's just dangerous, Alan Porter, to mention reverse mortgages. But I remind people, reverse mortgages started in America in 1961, became part of the federal government in 1988. What are they? They're federally insured loan for those aged 62 years or older that allows them to convert a portion of their home's value, turn it into tax-free dollars without giving up ownership, coming off title, having to make a monthly payment, or ever owing more than the home was worth at the end. A reverse mortgage simply is four words, I-J-A-M. It's just a mortgage. It's just a mortgage, folks. It's not spooky. It's not new. It's not dangerous. It's just a mortgage. Wow. And then that's so, so important. It's just a mortgage. And a lot of people think it's your, you know, you're going to talk more about the benefits and everything. How are benefits determined, Don? Sure. When, and that, Neil, that's a great question. So I asked people, I said, Mr. and Mrs. Flintstone, have you ever gotten a, a home equity line of credit? Said, oh, yes, a home equity loan, yes. I said, how did the bank or lender determine how much money you got? They said, well, I don't know. I said, let me tell you. Um, they looked at a geometric shape called a square. And they looked at four points, your income, your assets, your credit score, and your debt ratio. And based off of that, they say, here's the interest rate we're going to give you. And here's the dollar amount. The reverse mortgage, the federally insured home equity conversion mortgage, HECM, doesn't look at a square. Alan, it looks at a triangle. 
It looks at the age of the youngest borrower. So it's actuarially based. The older you are, the more money you can get. In every state except Texas, uh, everyone has to, one person has to be 62. The other person only has to have reached the age of 18. So age of the youngest borrower, number two, value of the property. And number three, the future projected interest rate. Those three things go into a formula, a number comes back, and that goes in the middle of our triangle. That's your benefit amount. Now, a reverse mortgage must be a first mortgage. That's why many people use it. So underneath the base of the triangle we just drew, age, value of the home, current interest rate, we're going to subtract any outstanding loan balances that you have against your property, pay that off from the, begin, um, the, the money in the reverse mortgage, and what's left over is called a line of credit. So, Neil, the answer is age, value of the home, interest rate equals benefit amount. Yeah. Well, Don, you, you answered one of my questions about the age, but how can you use the proceeds from this HECM? Alan, that's such a loaded question. You know that. You you just you just threw Babe Ruth a softball up there. Now, now I've got to have all types of restraint on because there are 52 strategies to using a reverse mortgage 52 i'll give you one that's most common and um a, a lady is retiring neil allen husband and wife and they have um six hundred thousand dollars in savings and they have a six hundred thousand dollar home but their home has a mortgage on it they got that mortgage at age 55 and they've got a two hundred thousand dollar mortgage now they're retiring and they're saying, gosh, we need our income. We need our, everything has to work in sync. But I've got this mortgage payment of $2,000 a month. If I could get rid of that, would that make a difference for my retirement income? So the number one way in America people use a reverse mortgage is to get rid of an existing monthly mortgage payment. That's the number one way. Why is that important? Well, think about it. I'm in retirement. And I can get rid of a mortgage payment, principal and interest of $2,000 a month. Oh, my gosh, that changes everything. That changes how much money I have to take out from my qualified plans, my annuities, my cash value life insurance, or my income. That means the money I do have can last significantly longer. But it also means I can weather the storms that come in retirement. Inflation, future tax rates, market volatility, market returns, spending shocks, length of life, you name it. Now I've got a way to weather it. So, Alan, I would say that's really the, the number one way is to get rid of an existing monthly mortgage payment. The number two way are the people I just got off the phone with that went a little long here. They've got a million dollars in investable assets. They've got Social Security and a pension. But now they're concerned. Is that going to be enough given all the things that can erode retirement? And I said to them, what if we could turn your home into a $200,000 reserve that's currently growing at about 8%. And I showed them that. And I said, what could you do if you had this reserve, this standby? Man, that opened up a ton of conversation. And it grows tax-free. Absolutely. Proceeds from a loan are not taxable income. And isn't that important? That, um, Alan, you think, and, and I know what you do. Now, a lot of people don't understand the impact of, of having too much money um, and how it impacts your Social Security. Oh, yeah. And, and or, or you get to a certain age, 73, and you, and you have to take out required minimum distributions. But now you take out what I call RMD plus. That can yeah. move you to a whole different tax bracket. You can go to 12 to 14 or 14 to 22 or whatever. And I said, what if we could control? We could use your home's equity to control the amount of taxable income you have coming in so we can e either keep you in the same tax bracket, lower your tax bracket. Would that be something that would make sense to you? What if we could take the, the million dollars you have in, in a qualified plan and use some of the strategies you talk about, Alan Porter, uh, using a Roth conversion, but instead of paying the taxes from the asset itself, we pay the taxes from the growing reverse mortgage line of credit. And we model that. And people's hair will catch on fire. You can see what happened to me over my 24 years. I've lost it all, all the times it caught on fire, Neil. So anyway, let me let me stop there. Well, uh, other too, Don, what you're doing is you're creating another bucket of money that you can use in your retirement. 
And people yeah. understand, you know, they say, well, I've got a lot of money in retirement. I said, it's not how much money you have in mm -hmm. retirement. It's how much money you have after taxes. That's right. That's right. There, but, there are three. Yeah, go ahead, Alan. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, you've already answered the other question about the age age requirement. Mm -hmm. uh, There's just so many things you can do. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, you know, and it's just, it's, it's simply as, as Alan talked about, it's not your assets, your income after retirement. So if you can figure out ways using things that the, of the reverse mortgage, getting that and taking that line of credit and utilizing it in other types of investments that you can get as, as income after retirement, your income will increase a lot more and you're not going to be stuck if you have a mortgage and that's at assets because you're going to be again, uh, taxed, um, with Medicare and what Alan was talking about before. So really you got to look at, they'll look at uh, your assets could hurt you long-term versus income that if it's not taxable, that will not be hurt in the process of looking at your income. And yeah. so it's really, really interesting, right, Alan? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why I look at everything that you get as if you better put it in some sort of, of a process that is investable that you're not going to get hit towards in your retirement, especially when people are going to retire as older, as, as early as they were before. And they're going to have to have this money and they're going to have to live on it. And they're going to have to figure out entrepreneur ways or great investable experts like yourself, uh, Don and Alan. If work with Don and Alan, then you could be in good shape because you better start thinking about that now uh, uh, before you could be in cost saying, oh, I got my retirement 401k and it's not going to do anything for you in the long term. It's going to be hard to live off that in retirement. Uh, so you talked about the certain age, again, to be eligible. How do you become involved in reverse mortgages, Don? In terms of what? Unpack that for my Kentucky brain, please. Okay. So it, how do we become, how can we get a reverse mortgage? Sure. And so the for the consumer, for those who may be listening, the first thing you want to do is get some education. And that's what I do most. And I, I'm in my 24th year of doing reverse mortgages. And in that time, I've had about 16,000 consumer-facing conversations. And about 3,000 people went forward to become my clients. And that tells us two things. Number one, that I've talked to a lot of people. Number two, I've told a lot of people that this is not the right thing for you to do. So education is essential. And I don't know if I can, I, I've created a master class that's educational in nature. I can certainly give the website or you can put it in the show notes, whatever um, you want to prefer, uh, prefer, but get some education. After the education, um, certainly because this is what I do for a living for 24 years, I would say schedule a consultation. Um, most of my business comes through financial advisors. So Alan, um, talk to Alan and schedule a consultation because this is not a standalone product. This is a paradigm by which we're going to help develop and incorporate this into a comprehensive, holistic retirement income plan. And you want to do that with a financial advisor. Only 16% of retirees have a financial advisor and a written financial plan. But the truth is those that do will do better in retirement. So make sure um, you connect with Alan. And then we'll help you as a part of that to go step by step. But start with education. And then number two, get a consultation. And if you say, this is for me, then we do what's called an origination. That's a lending term. That means we start the process. What are some common misunderstandings? Don, we had a ton of conversation about that when you're on my show. But what are some common misunderstandings of reverse mortgages? You went to your cousin Tracy's barbecue. And Uncle Junebug came out of her spare bedroom. And everybody said, Uncle Junebug, what, what's going on? You live in the Tracy's? And he said, oh, yeah. And he said this. He says, I got that reverse mortgage, and I lost my house. And everybody at the barbecue kneeled. And Alan said, oh, my gosh, I knew it. I knew it. And, and before you know it, they'd gone down to the Piggly Wiggly and told everybody down there. And Sunday, they were at the deacon's meeting before church and Rotary Club. And for, by the end of the week, everybody knew someone who knew someone who had an uncle somewhere got a reverse mortgage and lost his house. And they say, Don, what do you say about that? I said, it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. They said, what? You're taking old people's houses. I said, now, he didn't tell you the whole truth. See, the whole truth, there are four requirements to get a reverse mortgage. Live in the property, at least one of the, the spouse. Take care of it. Keep insurance in force and pay your property-related taxes. See, Uncle Junebug hadn't paid his taxes in four years. That doesn't make a good story. 
that so people hear these um, 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 stories and they say, oh my gosh. So the common misconception, number one, is you can lose your house. You can get a reverse mortgage and you can lose your house. No, live in the house, pay your taxes, keep insurance in force, and take care of the property. Number two, the bank owns the home. The bank does not own a home. I-J-A-M, it's just a mortgage. It's a lien against the property. The bank doesn't own the home. You can sell, move, do whatever you want. The second biggest misconception. So those two kind of permeate. You could lose the home. Um, the bank owns the home. You can get put out of the home. No, 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 no. Do the things that you're already doing and tell the truth about it. So those are your common, and I would say one for Alan Porter and, and this group, because the folks who listen to this podcast will be, um, I would say, the, the, the mass affluent baby boomers are above, that the reverse mortgage is only those who are house rich and cash poor. It's not for me. Nothing could be further from the truth. The people I talked about earlier had a million dollars, had a pension and social security, and they and I said to them, most of my clients don't need a reverse mortgage. They want one when they discover what it can do to enhance the rest of their retirement. But very folks, very few folks need it. And so um, I don't know how much time I have, but those are the common misconceptions. The spectrum of people who get a reverse mortgage uh, range from the house rich cash poor. That's certainly appropriate. But I had a man that had $45 million in assets. Um, look at a reverse mortgage. Another fellow retired CEO of a multinational pharmaceutical company um, did a reverse mortgage. He had $5 million in investable assets. I don't have time to unpack all the strategies, but each one of these folks said, you know what? I'm going to leverage my housing wealth so I can get more of something over here. Alan, I guess it's your question. You're on mute, Alan. Alan, you're on mute. All right. So uh, we'll, we'll keep, we're, again, we're talking. Uh, there it is. Okay. I'm Don sorry. Graves. Okay. Go ahead, Alan. With your next I'm sorry. Question. Don, you, you, you've answered a lot of my questions already. But one of the things that I find when I talk to people about reverse mortgages, I mean, these people are millionaires. Their houses are paid for. I've got one guy right down the block. But he relies on his financial advisor. That's been with him for years. Mm -hmm. And his advisor told him, well, not to do this. So I asked him, I said, what's his, what's his thinking about this? I mean, this is tax-free money. And it's financial advisors out there that aren't educated in the process. Now, we don't make any money off this, and like I tell people. But I know what it does. And I know the benefits of it. And I have teams of specialists on my team, besides top CPAs and uh, uh, attorneys, and other special in the field, just mm -hmm. like you, Dom, that know the advantages of these. And that's why I want people to talk with you. Sure, sure. A lot of financial advisors. I remember when I was growing up, my mom went to the chiropractor and she swore by the chiropractor. If you had a cold, if you had a mosquito bite, just go to chiropractor. But in those days, in the 60s, I mean, that was like going to the witch doctor. They're going to put leeches on you. And it, I mean, the um, insurance companies wouldn't cover chiropractic medicine. But now it's as common as every day. Once we got past the spooky and the dangerous and this is weird, not so. When when you don't know what you don't know, you're a dangerous person. You're a dangerous person. The doctor, most financial advisors are great people. And I say to them, you don't have time to understand reverse mortgages. You're you're a family physician or you, you're a, um, a surgeon and you do hip replacements and knee replacements. You don't have time to learn about delivering babies or separating conjoined twins or these other things, but you have to be open to know that the latest things that are helping comprehensively um, in retirement income planning, this has great track record. What happens when financial thought leaders and academics say um, from MIT, from Cambridge, from Texas Tech, from Stanford, from Ohio State University, from the American College. Um, what happens when you have the academic community, FINRA, the SEC, other regulators say that housing wealth should be incorporated as a part of, of a responsible retirement income plan? When you've got papers and PhDs and academics after ac academics in the financial planning world saying this is important, 
Well, two things. That one could be arrogance. Well, that's not for me and my clients. Another could be ignorance. <laughs> You're just not going to make time to learn about it. Or listen, I take the approach that you don't have time to learn about it. Give me seven minutes and allow me to share with you some things that others in the financial planning community are doing. And that's what I do. Hey, Neil, Alla, I take advisors and from, from net negative to net neutral and then over to positive because every advisor I met, and I've been doing 24 years, nobody knew about it nor liked it when I first started. Now, oh, we've got we've got history and we've got science and metrics on our side, Alan, don't we? Uh, we know. Oh, absolutely. We know, know what housing wealth can do when used in a responsible way. And, and Don, right. here's the thing. Um, you know, people tell me, well, they're financial advisors. Give them all their financial tax advice. But here's the other thing, too. Um, you know, I said, everybody has their opinion. I have my opinion. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I rely on the people, the PhDs in retirement, mathematical, economic, and, and uh, scientific facts. This is what I base my proposals on and the experts in the field. Not some opinion of some financial advisor. Right. Right. And so the, the experts and the leaders have spoken about reverse mortgages. That's indisputable these days. And helping folks to move forward. So that's why I start with education. There's no harm in getting education and learning and then consultation. 52 strategies. I don't know what type of retirement a person envisions. The folks I spoke to earlier today they had a home, and I said, they didn't have a mortgage on their property. That's rare. But I asked them, do you pay homeowner's insurance? They said, oh, yes, of course. I said, you don't have to. So why do you do it? I said, I do as well, but why do you do it? You've got a million dollars. They said, well, things could happen. And I said, the Society of Actuaries, Neil, said that the probability that someone over the age of 65 will have any type of catastrophic home damage is less than 2%. I said, but you're willing to pay, these folks pay $4,000 a year to do that for the next 10, 20, 30 years or something that probably won't happen. But now you're living in an insurance policy. You can turn your home into an insurance policy to insure your retirement. So when I showed them that we could start at $200,000 and end up at a million dollars with a growing line of credit that can be accessed tax-free anytime for any reason, cannot be frozen, capped, canceled, or reduced. And I said, what difference could that make in what you're trying to accomplish? You're already paying for insurance that you don't need <laughs> for your home because you got a million dollars. You're probably never going to use that or need it. But with terms of retirement income, all the things that are could, coming in the world, all the uncertainty, they got it. They understood it. And they're moving forward. So get education. Neil, where do you start? Start with education. Education is the most important thing. And Don, is there a place we can find information on you and stuff? Sure. You can, I teach a masterclass, www.housingwealthmasterclass.com. Real simple, housingwealthmasterclass.com. Go there, watch it, write down your questions, draw, watch the first seven minutes. You say, this is not for me. There's an exit ramp. But get the knowledge, get the information. Most people are sitting on uh, the average baby boomer in America. The U.S. Census Bureau said this, 68% of the total wealth of the average baby boomer in America is in their home, yep. in their homes. And so I have to watch how I say this. I said this at the at the Baptist church in the deacons meeting. I said, um, Miss Jones, you're sitting on you're sitting on a big asset right there. And they didn't understand what I said. And I had to apologize. But there's a big asset that people people are sitting on it. Alan and Neil, watch where you say that at. But if at a minimum, if you had money in a bank account somewhere and someone said to you, hey Neil, Someone died and they left you the contents of their safe deposit box. The president of a bank, you knew the bank. He said, here's the key. Would you go and at least know what's in there? Yeah. Absolutely. So I'm saying that 87% of Americans, Alan, um, have been are, have a safety safe deposit box, their home, and has something in it. Whether they use it or not, they should know what's in there for their benefit. That's all I'm saying. Get the knowledge, learn what you have, learn how to use it with a skilled financial advisor. Um, and I can't recommend anyone high, higher than my good friend, Alan Porter. Awesome. Alan, any other questions for Don? Well, Don, I, I appreciate everything you said because it's all about education. You can't get too much of it. 
Yes. And people understand there's over $9 trillion of home equity for people in retirement right now. That's sitting there untouched. It's huge. It's ginormous. So it's the, it's the part of our education to explain that reverse mortgages, cash value, life insurance, annuities are the way to go in investing. And people all are, and the financial advisors are attacking all three of those products. True or false? I'll leave that to Alan to answer. Yeah. Well, they attack them because they don't know about them, Neil. They're, they're not educated. They're looking at numbers versus longevity. And the other thing, they get paid a fee whether you make money or not. So then they can't be selling something they're not getting a fee on. So there you go. It's, it's all about it's all about it. So I appreciate it. But you can also contact Alan at strategicwealththenumberzero at gmail.com or call him at 910-551-1046. Appreciate it, Alan. Thanks, Don. Thank, Thank you, Don. All you. right. That was the Strategic Wealth Strategies Podcast, guys. Take care. We're back to Neil Haley's show. My guest today is Tracy Poisoner, and we're going to talk about it from Space Time Alchemy. Tracy, how are you? And you're going to educate me and what are Bach flowers? Because I have no idea. I just heard the word from you six months ago when I've been working on other marketing uh, programs with you. And I'm like, what? And now you're going to educate me and the audience what Bach flowers are. Yeah. So um, Bach flowers are, Bach flower essences are a kind of uh, energetic medicine. They're in the same world, roughly speaking, as homeopathic medicines. They're very different. I, I've i been a homeopath for 25 years, so I, I understand the subtle differences between them, but certainly both kinds of products are energetic medicines that work on the physical body at a level beneath body chemistry, where let's say where the quantum physics part of your body lives. Okay. So I know for a lot of people, it's, it's very hard to imagine that, you know, that, that there is a level of your body more, um, more fundamental than your body chemistry. But of course, if you, if you look with a microscope, a powerful enough microscope, you get deeper and deeper into the cells, the molecules, the atoms, the subatomic particles. Okay. Like those are undeniably part of your body. Right. And the, the behavior of those subatomic particles talking about like um, electrons and protons and neutrons that you learned about in science class, that's the world of quantum physics. And Okay, before I dive too deep, because we did talk a little bit about quantum physics, quantum physics. Um, I think last week, but Bach flowers are made not by like pulverizing the flower and extracting the chemical ingredients. They're made, you won't believe this, by laying the flowers in a bowl of water in the sunlight. And oh. like that's for real. And some energetic quality of the of the flower petals i guess is transferred into the water in a way that makes them active on the physical level when you take it into your mouth so that all sounds kind of like pretty woo but the truth is that these things have been used now for 100 years in all corners of the world and there is a very famous blend of them called rescue remedy so many, many of your listeners will have encountered Rescue Remedy on the shelf of their regular drugstore, their regular grocery store. It's something that um, many, many veterinarians use for animals because it's so calming. Uh, so these products have a long, long history of being tremendously effective. There are only 38 of them, 38 flowers uh, that are not that mostly they're not ornamental flowers. There are a couple that are, but uh, the majority of them are tree flowers, mm. um, interestingly enough. But this whole system was created by a medical doctor in England named Edward Bach. Uh, in in uh, honor of him, I'll say that he called himself Edward Bach. I find it hard to, to pronounce his name that way. But um, But he started out as a bacteriologist who was working with um, 
the products of the human intestine to create healing um, injections, actually, is what he was doing originally. And he became very famous for that because it was extremely effective. And after a number of years, he took that whole system into the world of homeopathy and he joined the Royal London Homeopathic Hospital where he partnered with another homeopath and turned that whole, um, essentially a vaccine system into homeopathic medicine. And then he became really famous for that. And then he walked away from the whole world of medicine to follow his intuition about uh, flowers being powerful, a source of healing. Wow. And uh, he did it in a very, very different way than there's nothing homeopathic about the preparation of these medicines or about how they're. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.